everybody, let me uh, begin uh, with um, a prayer, and uh, and then um, I'll proceed the next two to three uh, talks, and then we'll turn over to Ron. Thanks, Lord, for uh, tonight. Thank you for the community of discourse and inquiry that. Uh, Gospel conversations has become over over the years uh, in this room, but this room is really just a fractal of a, of, a, of a much broader community around the world who listen and engage, who who love you and want to explore, find out more about the possibilities and the horizons of life and of our God. So we thank you for Ron. You've given him. Um, as you've given all of us, you've given him some unique gifts and perspectives that we can benefit from uh, as he takes us tonight to the edge of mystery and beyond, really, just in the material world. Um, anoint him and help us to see your glory uh, uh, like the burning bush inside it, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, a couple of uh, comments about the talks. Ron is doing this talk tonight, and then um, I'm going to do a talk, the next talk, which will get back on cycle on the on the first Monday, uh, because Ron's busy doing something. What? No, we're going to go farming. Farming, taking care of his farms. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I've uh, been, I just think the, this, uh, I've been listening eagerly to what Ron's talking about and I'm going to insert a talk uh, on the Incarnation, uh, this title that I've used, uh, The Incarnation Detour or Destination, um, which is, <coughs> which will take a lot of what Ron is talking about perhaps more explicitly uh, into theology um, and into some of the great debates between grace and nature. Um, and um, I was reading, I've, I've been blessed the, uh, over the last month or so reading about George MacDonald and he, A historian called Timothy Larson was giving talks on George MacDonald and he described the 19th century, the first half was dominated by the theory of atonement uh, in England and Scotland. The second half was dominated by an inquiry into the incarnation, uh, which is what it is to be a human being in the world. So I'll, I'll do that. Give Ron a break, but then Ron's going to do the, 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 this. So this talk tonight is on relativity. It's a small topic to get over, um, <laughs> and uh, and then he'll uh, you'll get light relief from me. I'll go into Dun Scottus and medieval theology of nature and grace, and then Ron will return with another light topic on quantum mechanics. <laughs> so. You've got to put your seatbelt on for this because this takes up a few minutes. I'll never forget till the day I die, Rick Watts and Ron on, on the uh, table of our veranda with Ron trying to explain to Rick Watts quantum mechanics. So as bright as he is with his aeronautical engineering, Rick, Rick was just like, 
hanging on for, by the fingernails uh, because it's spooky. So, I've obviously got a bit of a passion for all this. I never know whether anybody else does. But I think, as a general rule, we're all, we've all got a passion for trying to understand our faith in the modern scientific age. And we've been talking the last couple of talks about uh, consciousness and what it is to be a human being in a modern scientific interpretation. Um, today I want to uh, look at two... Uh, I was originally going to do relativity and quantum theory in one talk, but then I thought that was probably too much. Thank you, Ron. <laughs> um, and I will do a... I'm going to, like in some of my previous talks, I'm going to try and go quick and high over relativity. I'm not going to get too bogged down in it. And it's not... There's only a couple of concepts you need to understand to understand the real significance of it. But I want to try and draw out how that changed our view of the world, which I don't think we've, we've caught up with as a, as a culture or society. And of course, quantum theory took it even further. And basically, they've restored mystery right into the heart of science. And uh, they're not debated nearly enough. We're basically stuck in a Newtonian age in science. Our high school curriculum and our uh, assumptions about how the world works is all based on a Newtonian understanding and I want to try and flesh that out for you tonight and then draw some consequences about what it might mean for the next life as well there's an interesting little twist there so anyway I'll start this as I've tried to t point out in previous talks too there's nothing terribly new about this concept. Democritus in 460 BC pretty much says the same thing that Richard Dawkins says today. I don't think Richard Dawkins has moved the debate on at all in two and a half thousand years. It's a pretty simple concept. Uh, the little catchphrase in the top left, nothing exists but atoms and the void. That's what he, that was his contribution to the the universe of ideas and it seems to be the one that science wants to hang its hat on very much these days and I'll just read out on slide one his nice little ditty by convention sweet is sweet by convention bitter is bitter by convention hot is hot by convention cold is cold by convention color is color but in reality there are atoms and the void that is the objects of sense are supposed to be real and it is customary to regard them as such, but in truth they are not. Only the atoms and the void are real. Now last time I, I, I tried to uh, argue that there's a lot more going on than just atoms and the void. Uh, and of course mind was the topic of my first two talks and I mounted an argument that there's other things besides Adam and the Void that we can talk about. What I wanted to do in the last two talks is say, okay, we've put, let's put mind aside for a minute, for now, and just talk about those two things, atoms and the Void. Because it does seem that science 
mounts a pretty clear, convincing argument that they've, they've stumbled on something here, that atoms and the void can be used to describe a lot of the things we encounter in the world. And tonight I want to talk about the void, and then next time we'll talk about the atoms. And I want to try and mount an argument in the two talks that these, both these things are not really understood at all. They're metaphors and uh, constructs of our minds to deal with far deeper created things that deliver experience for us, but they don't really wipe away mystery at all. So, launching in, in slide two, it's a, you can see a photograph on the right-hand side, taken in 1990, where a guy called Carl Sagan, who was probably the first celebrity cosmologist, most of you may have heard of him, um, he's dead now, but um, he convinced NASA to turn the spaceship around on its way to uh, Jupiter and take a photo back at the Earth when it was nearly at Jupiter. And you can see my, little, my arrow there is pointing to a very thin, a very tiny blue dot. Can you see that? And uh, this is what he said about that. Look again at that dot. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every, 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 he goes on. Um, every sinner and saint, I'm, I'm dropping down now, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Our posturings, um, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all these, this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. That really is a very, it's like a manifesto in many ways, a modern scientific manifesto. Um, and I think we all absorb it somehow. We absorb this sense of uh, insignificance, against infinity, of the vastness of the cosmos and our uh, insignificance in it. And I think it erodes our faith constantly. It, it's something we have to deal with and it's something we have to um, try and fit into our worldview as modern 21st century believers. It didn't always used to be like that. Slide three shows a picture of the Greek world. So I want to go through now where it came from. Where, does this, where did this manifesto come from originally? 
Well, the Greek world, this is Aristotle's world, who came after Democritus. It was a very nice, intimate universe with the Earth at the center and all the planets and the sun revolving around us. There was the firmament, which was speculated to be some perfect substance, the fifth element, where the stars were embedded. But it was all very close. There was nothing far away. Um, the Greeks also had four elements, earth, air, wind and fire, which had essences and determined the way everything moved. And it, of course it wasn't until Copernicus came along, nearly 1500 years later, nearly 2000 years later, which allowed us to, to live in blissful ignorance of the size of the universe. And of course, everything changed with Copernicus. The modern scientific revolution was born. Uh, Galileo helped him in his pursuit. He, of course, put the sun at the center. There was no real thought about how big the universe was at that stage. He just rearranged the order of the planets. But it wasn't long before a guy called Tycho Brahe, who's a Danish astronomer, just by the naked eye, started to take very detailed measurements of the movement of the planets. And a guy called Kepler, soon after him, managed to figure out mathematically how they revolved around the sun from those accurate measurements. And then it wasn't long after that that Newton came up with all his mathematical explanations of how the whole oper operation worked. One interesting thing... Newton kept saying, in his, if you read his writings, he keeps saying this phrase in the bottom left-hand corner of slide six, hypothesis non fingo, I frame no hypothesis, because Newton thought it was, while he described the way gravity, the forces of gravity attracted two bodies to each other, he had no idea how they did that. He, he thought the whole idea of two bodies attracting each other over empty space was completely ludicrous and he would not form any hypothesis about what grav gravity could possibly be. But what Newton left us with was this concept of space of just infinitely extended emptiness and time of infinitely extended duration. These vast unimaginable canvases which were on a scale and uh, significance almost to rival God himself. In fact, while we, while we uh, of course, all say, well, God is outside time and space, it's very hard for us to imagine how that could possibly be because we have these views that space and time are infinite in, in all dimensions that we can think of. So how could God, God possibly get outside of it? We have a tremendous respect, in other words, for space and time. We feel they are so fundamental that we and God cannot overcome them in a way, I would postulate. Of course, the argument that God therefore must somehow exist 
it must have come into exist existence somewhere in the scale of time we all scoff at but you can see why that infinite regression argument is a strong one when an atheist says well who created God he, something must have been before God and that's because of the respect we pay to the infinity of time we think somehow he's no match for it anyway once they'd uh, once Newton had worked out the mathematics it wasn't a lot it, it was very easy to do the trigonometry as well and to start figuring out the scale of the solar system and there I put up a table for you you can see on the right hand column on slide 9 uh, the earth is 149 million kilometers from the Sun Pluto is 5.9 uh, 5 billion 900,000 5.9 billion kilometers from the Sun so the scale that's a scaling factor of uh, 30 times Pluto is 30 times further from the Sun than the Earth so already straight away we're starting to shrink our significance dramatically and space and time are starting to become monoliths that we are absolutely enthralled by and feel we can never overcome that's a uh, slide 10 is a nice little proportional representation of the earth beside the sun the earth is actually a you could fit one million earths inside our sun which is also a staggering thing to think about um, you get that on the left hand column of that slide 9 you can see the diameter measurement the Sun is 1.3 million kilometers in diameter whereas we are only uh, 12 sorry that, is that, yes 12,000 kilometers in diameter I think this is that in a modern Western mind these things always linger in the back and, that, and we wonder how we can be significant either to ourselves, to others, or to God in this sort of scale. Is that fair, or do you think... Uh, anyway, just going on with this scale business, slide 11 shows... Recently, I don't know if you've noticed in the news, the New Horizons spaceship has been on, a way, on its way to Pluto and beyond. This is basically the timeline for the New Horizons spaceship. It, it's the fastest rocket we've ever made. It travels at 58,000 kilometers per hour. Um, it was launched in 2006. By 2007 it had already hit Jupiter's system. Then it took another eight years to get to Pluto. So, we're, we're dealing with a big place, as we all know. Then you've got the problem of the stars, which just take us to another different dimension again. In the time, in the time of um, Galileo and Newton, there was a big problem, mathematically or trigonometrically, they couldn't detect any s parallax 
from the stars. Now, does anyone know here what parallax is? Par parallax is that effect. If you open your left eye and look at an object with the right eye closed, then close the left eye and open the right eye, the object appears to shift because you're actually, the, the distance between your two eyes creates an angle, a different angle for you to look at that object from and you detect that shift. Well something very very far away exhibits no parallax. We notice parallax, you can notice in this room of course if you do that little exercise for yourself. What astronomers started to do was they said well we're going to take a reading of, st of a star's position on one side of the Earth's orbit and then wait six months and take a reading on the other side of the Earth's orbit and surely that will be a big enough angle for us to detect some parallax. Well it took them a hundred years before they could detect any parallax until their instruments were sensitive enough to be able to do that. And currently our best telescopes and instruments can only detect stellar parallax in about 300 light years. After that they are so far away that even the the diameter of the Earth's orbit cannot detect it. So we're talking about of course crazy vast distances and of course the whole the whole science or should I say fantasy of cosmology has become the hot topic and hot uh, scientific pursuit in recent years. Every it, all the time you see you can see documentaries about all these sort of things on the History Channel or whatever. Just to give you, and I, I keep talking scale because the scale is truly mind-boggling. The nearest star is 40 trillion, is that? Kilometres away. And it would take New Horizon 76,000 years to get there. Now, of course, once those sort of distances are measured, kilometres become a fairly meaningless kind of unit. So they devised, they, they looked for the fastest thing they could possibly find, and of course that was light. And so they now measure everything by the, the distance that light can travel in one year. And that's very significant, and that really is the foundation of relativity, because nothing can actually travel faster than the speed of light. And that was Einstein's great discovery, although he didn't quite put it like that. And we'll go on to that in a minute. But I think what, it, what Einstein did, he started to shrink the universe again. Uh, I'm going to try and explain and convince you of that over the course of this talk. This is just, slide 14 is just some interesting in calculations. Light travels 300 kilometres per second. It means that that speed it can go seven and a half times around the Earth in one second. Um, eight, it can travel 18 million kilometres in a minute, one billion in an hour, and so it goes on. It's very fast which is probably an indicator that it's probably something quite significant about it.
again, these are the sort of distances that modern astronomy gets into and loves to talk about. On slide 15, light takes eight minutes to get from us to the sun. It takes seven hours to get to Pluto, four years to get to the nearest star, 100,000 years to get across our galaxy, two and a half million years to get across intergalactic space to the nearest galaxy, which is the Andromeda galaxy. And 13 and a half billion years to the edge of the observable universe. Now I'll explain what that means, but first I'll have to go through relativity with you to give you an explanation of what the observable universe means. Do we, do we all lie awake at night sometimes thinking, how can I be significant in this sort of universe? Uh, I think we, we box it up and put it aside and think, obviously, God, th that we are, we're told we are significant That's and, of course... And your wife asked me before she came to Christ. What was that? Oh. She said to me, when I was a teacher, she said, uh, <coughs> I look at the stars and they're so far away and how are we significant? I can remember that the day I died. Mm -hmm. That was a terrible question. Yes, it is a terrible question. Anyway, that's enough doom and gloom. Um, although, I will just say, I will just point out, the way they measure these distances is, of course, very open to speculation. Uh, they use models about stars' luminosities. So they, they have ways of predicting what type of star is situated in a particular galaxy, another galaxy. Uh, particularly useful ones are what's called pulsars or seafood uh, variables. They pulse in a certain way and they speculate that stars, all stars reach the pulsar stage at a certain phase in their life cycle and therefore we can make various assumptions about um, how luminous, how what their absolute luminosity is and therefore we can man compare it to other luminous objects and make predictions about how truly far away it is in case you were wondering. Uh, there's other interesting things that astron uh, cosmology has introduced into our world view and that's the expanding universe of course. They do that by um, measuring the red shift of the light coming from stars. So if an object, if, if a star is stationary, the spectrum, this is slide 17, the spectrum of the light should match what we see here on Earth, which is the central one. If, it, if this star or galaxy is moving away from us, the light from that galaxy should be red, sh red shifted because the wavelength is being dragged and sh uh, away and lengthened or if it's moving towards us, it's supposed to be blue shifted. And when they match that, of course they found that everything was red shifted, so it's all expanding, it's all going away, and of course this is starting to get into Big Bang territory and how the whole theory of Big Bang started to come about. Um, and then if you match... Uh, the amount of red shift can also determine the velocity of expansion because obviously if 
the more the red shift. That gives you some sort of scale for measuring the comparative rates of expansion between various galaxies. And if you then pl plot the, the luminosity of those galaxies against the redshift, you come up with these speculative answers like the universe is 15 and a half billion years old and you know it's got the, the observable universe is uh, 15 and a half, therefore 15 and a half billion years in diameter, uh, light years in diameter. Now these, con these concepts I'm sure flow in and out of your uh, everyday experiences. You see them on the History Channel and then discard them as too much to think about. Let somebody else think about them or maybe you think about them a lot. Um, yes, yeah, so the Hubble constant, that's, that leads to naturally to speculations about the age of the universe because we keep looking out and galaxies are still expanding and we make some sort of judgment about how far away they are in light years that will tell us how long it's taken light to get to us from there and as light travels from there in a year uh, we can speculate about ha both how old and how big the universe I don't know what happened to that oh sorry anyway that's that's what they think it is and that's our current mythology the one we are all dealing with at the moment. Uh, Genesis or the Big Bang, I'm not sure which is better science, to be honest. If you read a book like um, A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking, the first two or three chapters are fine. He talks hard science, but then he just goes, you know, all these cosmologists become so speculative and theoretical that you may as well call it magic. And there's actually quite a movement against that in certain s segments of academia these days, particularly around quantum cosmology. They're trying to fit the quantum world into the world of the universe and also string theory. You might have heard of string theory, which if you're not a string theorist in, in the physics departments of the major universities, you're just nobody. But string theory is a ridiculously speculative model of the universe that can never, by definition, can never be proved. Um, but I think it's, it's interesting, in, this, in the face of such vast time and space and the seeming insignificance of the human race, we just don't want to accept that, do we? So we build new mythologies around that as well. St on the left on, on slide 22 is Star Trek. You know, we, we build spaceships with warp drive that can hurtle us through the universe at speeds that scale it back down again to a manageable level. Or if you're in Star Wars universe, you know, you've got the hyperdrive that means, well, the universe is not that big anymore. Humanity is actually able to conquer this huge expanse of both time and space. Or you might believe, you know, that the Marvel Universe where you've got superheroes with superpowers that can, within themselves, contain the ability to bring the, cut the universe back down to size again. And I think 
really what these are doing, these mythologies are doing, are responding to something that's already there in the Gospels. And I want you to think about that in relation to this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, which you all know very well, I'm sure. I'm going to read it out. Slide 23. Once I put my glasses on. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What, with what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now are we talking, are we talking physics here, is my question that I'd like to consider. And Tony's raised this before. It seems like we're going to have something incredibly awesome happen to us when we are resurrected. These bodies we're going to get are every bit the match for this vast universe. I think this passage is implying. We're constrained at the moment by the natural. Um, by the weakness of it but I think there is enough alluded to in this passage to indicate or to hint that there's something amazing going to happen when we're resurrected and this vast vastness of the universe will will we'll, uh, bring under control as well I think that's what is implied in the original passage in Genesis when God's tells Adam and Eve to uh, subdue the earth. In other words, to, perhaps that's the, not the right word to use in the modern uh, social context, but you know what I mean. To, to take stewardship of the earth, to be able to roam about in it. Well, Because it raises many questions. Like why did the God make the universe so big? Well, just imagine if we were still living in the Greek world. We'd be very disappointed now if New Horizons sudden... It's only a, probably a, a couple of days' journey away from the celestial sphere that the stars are housed in. It'd be banging up against the stars. But God, is exp God has expanded our minds to the infinite and he's created our minds to, to uh, embrace the infinite. A Greek universe was a very limited uh, construction, not worthy of God and not worthy of us. But with our 1 Corinthians 15 resurrection bodies, it could be a totally different ballgame. I'm now reading from verse 46 the spiritual did not come first but the natural and after that the spiritual now you there's lots of interesting things going on here you can there's a whole uh, enormous theological exploration about why the natural came first and not the spiritual why are we in this manifestation of reality 
And why is there going to be another one where there's the spiritual coming next? Um, I, I, I'm not going to go into that now because I think actually I, I covered a lot of this in my talks on Sim Tsum, if you're interested to, to have a think about that. Um, and I'd be happy to have another go at it at, at a later date. What I want to concentrate on is the physics today. Um, the first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the imperishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. That's putting the universe back in its box a bit, isn't it? It's making it clear what the real astounding creation was. Not, yes, the universe is an astounding creation, but the steward, the image of God that was put into it was even more astounding and will grow into it, I, I, I propose. Just a few more verses that may help to build this argument. 1 John 3, John says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. This is slide 24. Now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Well, what was Christ like? freaky from a physics point of view totally astonishing absolutely uh, magical in, me in many ways from Matthew 17 after six days Jesus took with him Peter James and John and the brother of James and led them up a high mountain by themselves there he was transfigured before them his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light now why are these descriptions put in the scripture? I think we misinterpret them in some way. We think of them as almost like fairy tales or, or, or not physical. They're not truly physical in the sense that they're real and they're describing some real quality that Jesus had or that John maybe misconstrued what he saw and he's, he's giving you some sort of uh, primitive answer to a phenomenon that was unexplainable but again I'm speculating that we're talking physics here again in John when Jesus walks on the water now what what is that you know that's physics physics is certainly involved in that when evening came this slide 25 when evening came his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum by now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough when they had rowed 
about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then this is the one we always sort of slip over. Then they were, then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So he's playing with space and time there in all sorts of wonderful ways. I mean, if you believe this miracle, you've got to start questioning what's the physics that's going on here? Well, I want to start talking to you about what I think relativity theory and quantum theory might give us some insights into what the physics might be that's going on here. Because a Newtonian view doesn't capture the amazing qualities of the physical world but relativity and quantum theory starts to so I'm going to give you a quick you know how like if you've listened to a couple of my last talks you know how I like to give you quick 15 minute summaries of various disciplines well this will be a 15 minute walk through relativity everybody this is a this is the view of the universe in slide 26 that we're all used to, the Galilean and Newtonian physics. This is what we've grown up with. And of course, this is the experience that we have in everyday life. We never experience relativistic effects because nothing's travelling near the speed of light that we encounter. Or if it does, if it is, we're probably dead by now. Um, but in everyday experience, if you look at this diagram, you've got a guy standing on the back of a small truck. The truck is travelling at 15 metres per second towards another guy standing on the road. The guy on the road is stationary. I'm going into details, sorry, because of the, the tape in case uh, they don't have the slides available to look at. He throws a ball, the guy in the truck throws a ball at 15 metres per second to the guy standing, stationary. Now we all know that you just add those velocities together to get a speed of 30 meters per second that the ball is approaching the guy standing stationary. Simple maths, simple, very simple physics. Everybody, I'm sh I hope everybody gets that. So here's another example. You're traveling in an airplane at a speed of 500 kilometers an hour You've got a headwind of 100 kilometres an hour. You know your ground speed or your net speed will be 400 kilometres an hour. You just subtract the headwind from the Sound waves are another example. And that's why we get supersonic booms. Because sound waves travel at a certain ray rate. Some airplanes travel below the speed of sound, others above the speed of sound. But you can catch up to a sound wave if you're an aeroplane. If you emit a sound, get it, jump in an aeroplane and zoom on after it. If you're traveling above 1,200 kilometers per hour, you will catch up to that sound wave and you'll pass it. Everybody good so far? I'm talking Newtonian physics now. That is what we experience in everyday life. And the only thing that wasn't really measured was, this, was whether we could catch up to light. 
that happened in the in 1887. Up until then, attempts had been made to measure the speed of light, which were actually not too bad, but nobody could tell if we could actually ever catch light or even gain on the speed of light. And this is the fundamental qu concept of relativity. If you get this concept, you understand relativity. Nothing ever gains on the speed of light, even if you're traveling at the speed, near the speed of light. The speed of light always looks to be traveling at the same speed, no matter whether you're trying to catch it, whether you're moving away from it, whether you're standing still and it's passing you. Everyone always measures the speed of light at the same velocity. So if you look at this diagram on slide 30, Imagine you're in a rocket ship traveling at 100,000 kilometers per second, one-third the speed of light. A light beam whizzes past you, fired by an infinitely powerful torch that somebody's flashed from behind. According to Newtonian physics, you should see that light beam going past at 200,000 kilometers per second, because you're already traveling at 100,000. Light travels at 300,000 you just add the velocity, or you subtract one velocity from the other. Everybody following or not? This is, what Einstein, this is Einstein's big discovery. This is what he postulated in his famous thought experiment. No, there's a big no with an exclamation mark on the page. That rocket ship will still experience light tra traveling past it at the full speed of light at 300,000 meters per second. It's as if that rocket ship was standing still compared to light. And that's the thing you have to, if you understand that concept, you understand relativity. As far as light is concerned, everything else in the universe is standing perfectly still. Here's another. Now this has very profound consequences because suddenly these eternal, vast edifices that we call space and time are no longer so eternal or so vast or such edifices because for light to always appear the constant thing, it must be space and time that's changing. And that's relativity. Space and time have become relative. Only light is always constant. They're relative to light. They're rel everything is relative to light, the whole universe. When God said, let there be light, he wasn't mucking around. He gave us a big hint right there and then how the universe was constituted, which is an also, also an interesting thought. Why would that be the first thing that Genesis um, comes up with? And this is simple, this is simple algebra, because if if velocity is distance over time, for my velocity, for the, for the velocity of light to appear constant, it must be distance and time. My distance and time measurements that are changing. My, the measurements of my own distance and time that are changing. So in fact, in this, di this diagram, in slide 31, you can see there's a rocket ship traveling at half the speed of light towards a stationary observer 
standing on the earth, say, and he flashes a light beam at the observer on the earth, and she measures the speed of that light beam approaching, you would imagine it should be approaching her at one and a half times the speed of light. Because there's already half from the spaceship, there's the full speed of light from the light beam. Together they make one and a half times. You add them together, you get one and a half. That's what would happen if you threw a ball off the back of a truck that we just looked at. But no, everybody will observe light still traveling at exactly 300,000 meters per second. Which means, and this was Einstein's genius, and his willingness to throw off this enormous convention that we all have that space and time are immutable. It's actually clocks and rulers, time and space, that is changing depending on everybody's relative motion to each other. How's everybody going so far with that? Well, what that means is space and time is not what we thought it was. Space and time are things that can be manipulated. We can actually manipulate space and time. We find it very hard to do so with big objects because, as we'll see in a minute, you require enormous amounts of energy to propel anything that's any size at all um, towards the speed of light. But with atomic things at atomic scale, we can actually get things, you know, these grand ex uh, particle accelerators that they build. They get particles traveling up towards the speed of light and they can, they can actually extend the life of particles almost indefinitely by getting them up to light speed. Particles that normally would just sort of flash in an instant and disappear again, they can have them s sitting in stasis in their own kind of little time warps. So we've already started to experiment with time in that, from that point of view. You can actually measure the effects of this by s putting two atomic clocks, which are, the accuracy of atomic clocks is actually greater than the dimension of the speed of light which is 300,000 meters per second, but the accuracy of atomic clocks gets down to like nanoseconds or something. So you can actually measure the effect if you put in one synchronized two atomic clocks, put one in an aeroplane. All you have to do is put in an aeroplane, send it around the Earth. When it comes back, it will no longer be synchronized with the other atomic clock. It will start, it will be running slower, measurably slower than the one that's uh, stayed on Earth. And this is, once you do start doing the mathematics of relativity, it becomes very, very interesting. Because as time, time dilates, which means it, sh it slows down, it starts to slow down. So if I'm the one traveling, if, if I go off in a rocket ship and you guys stay here on Earth, times, I, both of us experience time in our local environment exactly the same way. But when I come back, you've all aged dramatically, whereas I've hardly any time at all has passed for me in the spaceship. And that increases, that effect increases exponentially as we start to approach the speed of light. Um, and on the, on the left it shows that effect as you approach the speed of light. It's a graph on slide 32 with an asymptote right above the speed of light. 
And in fact, nothing can ever travel faster than the speed of light because time keeps shrinking and shrinking and shrinking to the point where it no longer exists. The same effect occurs for space. Uh, here, here are some of the statistics. If, uh, if I'm travelling 10% of the speed of light, on slide 33, time is, it's only dilated about one, oh, it's half a percent. Once I get to 50%, it's, I'm already experiencing time occurring 14% slower than whoever's been left on Earth. By the time I get to 90% of the speed of light, my time is only ticking over at 40%. And so you can see, I'm reading them out again for the benefit of those listening in on the talk. By the time I get to 99%, I'm at, my time is only elapsing at 14% of those who haven't joined me in the rocket ship. And then the last, a lot of the big work happens in the last 0.1%. You can see it's a real asymptote there. By the time I'm getting to 99.9999, I'm only experiencing time traveling at 0.1% of time here on Earth. And of course, time for a light beam doesn't exist. Because light is travelling right on the edge. Well, it, it actually forms the boundary. Light is what forms the boundary between space and time. It creates space and time. It's all linked in together. If you go back to this equation, you can see uh, velocity, time, length, all interrelated with light in the Einsteinian universe. You can make C squared the subject of that equation instead of T. I'm hoping you're all remembering your high school algebra. And you can make C squared the subject of the length equation so that you can actually describe uh, you can describe time in terms of light and you can describe length in terms of light. It's all the same stuff in an Einsteinian universe. So is energy and mass because there it is again e equals mc squared you've all heard of it what's light doing in there? There it is smack bang in the middle of the Einsteinian equation relating energy and mass. Light is a fundamental, is the fundamental substance of the universe. Everything, it's like everything distills out of it. Energy, mass, time, space. They're all interrelated and all part of the same substance. We experience it differently, but that is part of our human condition. From God's perspective, I would say it's part of our human natural condition. Perhaps we could speculate that when we receive our rec resurrection bodies, we'll experience these things in very different ways and be able to interact with them in very different ways. The tyranny of time and uh, distance 
energy and mass may not have us enthralled quite so much when we get our resurrection bodies. Uh, they seem they seem like immutable, insurmountable, eternal uh, properties that we battle against futilely, but I think Einstein is questioning that and making it much more human in, in a way. So mass also increases infinitely as it, as it, as it approaches the speed of light in the same way as length and time and it, therefore you need an infinite amount of energy to propel anything to the speed of light. So light also is, a, is an absolute speed limit in the universe. Nothing can ever travel faster than the speed of light in this current age. Can it in the next age? Of course, the galaxy seems like a very big thing if you can't travel faster than the speed of light. It even takes light 100,000 years itself to get from one side of the galaxy to the other. As far as we measure it, for the light beam itself, it's happened in an instant. No time has passed for the light beam whatsoever. Is this something like what Jesus was doing when he suddenly, they were from, they were in the middle of the lake and then instantaneously they were at the side of the lake? I'm just speculating, of course, and we won't know until we get there, but I think the language. But he does say, at the beginning of John's Gospel, I'm the light of the world. No accident. Um, I don't know if I'll go into light cones. Um, I will say something about this light cone. I don't know if you'll understand it. <laughs> um, slide 37. So a light cone basically is it's a diagram which indicates what you can experience from your position in space and time. Because once you understand light is the ultimate speed limit in the universe, of course, certain periods of time are no longer available for us to experience. So, for example, let's just take our nearest neighbour, Mars. There is no such thing, we can never agree, and let's say we, Elon Musk is successful in sending somebody to live on Mars, which may not be that far away. We and they will never again be able to agree on simultaneous events because we can never communicate faster than the speed of light. So I can only ever know what's going to happen to Elon Musk on Mars uh, three minutes from now. Or however long it takes, it takes an hour from now. 35 minutes, I don't know. I should. Well, you can't. So, you, you can only... You, well, you can, but you have to double the light travel time. So, it's a 70, if it's a 35-minute travel time to Mars, it's a 75-minute phone conversation. There's no way of sending information any faster between the two parties. And, of course, there's no way of having simultaneous events, certainly between us and somebody in another galaxy. 
they may as well be in, in another universe. We are separated. They are in what we would call a space-like region. There is no access in our timeline to those events in those areas of the universe. We can look back, sorry, we can look back into regions where light has been able to travel from those regions to us, but we can't look into what scientists call space-like regions where light would have to travel faster than its own speed in order for, to send information to us about those, those regions. And once you get into here, you're talking about backward causation. Causes, uh, effects come before causes. This is the, this is the spot where space and time are equally balanced on the, on the edge of a light beam. Um, so this is a diagrammatic version of a light cone showing two different people travelling relative to each other at relativistic speeds. They would disagree on slide 38 about a simultaneous event because for the observer that's moving, their light cone is starting to be distorted in relation to a stationary observer. Now, I'm not going to say any more about that because now I'm starting to get very complicated. But I just want to really, I wanted to point out that space and time are now very fluid concepts in an Einsteinian universe. They're not, they're nowhere near as tyrannical, I think, as they were in a Newtonian universe. And of course, matter and space interact. This is now general relativity. Matter and space interact. So gravity, according to Einstein, is it's no longer a force between two bodies, but it's the curvature of space and time which force causes uh, the effect of gravity. We've, the Earth is actually falling into the Sun's gravity well at just the right rate to keep it spinning around and not plunging in. So from Newton's point of view, on slide 40, an apple falls down in a uh, flat space, whereas in an Einstein's universe, the apple actually is just taking a straight path, as far as it's concerned, down the gravity well, down the curvature of space-time. Anyway, I'm not going to go into too much detail there. Light also interacts with matter. It's bent by matter. The sun, the only thing that will bend light is uh, matter, because it, it's, it's all made of the same substance. Um, I'm not sure that I will go into all that. I'll talk about the obs observable universe just as a last little bit. Um, so if we're looking out into space with our big Hubble telescope and we are noticing the galaxies are receding away from us and we're making some sort of good guesstimate about how far these galaxies are because of our pulsars and various other techniques for guesstimating the distances of those galaxies. Eventually, we will start to look at galaxies that are receding away from us at this 
at rates approaching the speed of light. And relativity tells us that nothing can go faster than the speed of light, so that out in those extremes, space and time is now starting to be distorted. And at the very edge, at the very edge where the galaxies are moving away at the speed of light, you've got what's called an event horizon. Nothing can go beyond that. So even if there is something beyond that, as far as we're concerned, we will never know about it because it's, um, it's unknowable as far as we're concerned in this natural age of the universe. Um, I want to finish with two passages of scripture which I think also are talking about physics and this notion that relativity gives us a glimpse into that space, time, matter, energy, they're all going to be much more um, accessible to us, conquerable for us in the next age. They won't be these almost godlike qualities that we can never overcome. I'm reading Romans, of course, 8, which you all know very well, from verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation, creation was subjected to frustration, enormous distances, the speed of light, speed limit, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. God's put these physical laws in place for reasons which we can speculate about, but which will be smashed in the next age in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And of course we all, I think we tend to interpret this as moral groaning. We're all groaning morally, we're living in a fallen world, you know, it's, it's, it's all. But I think the last sentence might throw a different light on that. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sons the redemption of our bodies. So I think Paul here is very much throwing it back into the physical world. The redemption of the body is the key factor that we're eagerly awaiting for our adoption to sonship. And again, last one, Hebrews. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. I've put that in red. This is slide 45. It's nice to know that the world to come will be subjected to us. Its vastness presumably will be within our capabilities. So it's not unto angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. And of course these are all well-known passages for everybody, but I, I guess I'm trying to put a different spin on them today. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? 
a son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Does that mean space and time as well? Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus. Um, so I guess I'm putting this argument for, forward as an antidote to the seeming insignificance and hopelessness of our position in the universe. And I think there's evidence in Scripture that there is, a f there is something amazing going to happen physically, both to us and the universe, in the next age to come. And we should not be afraid of the vastness of the universe, but rejoice in it, because maybe it's going to be our sandpit one day. And that's pretty much it, I think. Any questions, comments, or criticisms? Ron, I'm just wondering how much of the, when you're talking about like the physicality, materiality, um, and you're talking physics, how much have you thought about that in relation to biology and like the human body and the cells? You know, like, so I think like there's an atom structure and there's a cell structure. Just, yeah, you may not have thought about that, but um, I'm just wondering. Uh, no, that's a good question. And I have thought about it, of course, like we all have, I think. Uh, we all worry that we're just atoms, like I sort of alluded to in my previous talks, and that there's nothing more to us than that. But uh, I was really going to talk about that next time in my talk on matter or quantum theory. What I think I would say, based on this talk, is that it's a far more mysterious place than we thought, this creation, and a far more complex place. Space and time even are much weirder and more sophisticated than we thought as creations. So uh, obviously biologists talk about hierarchies emerging from simpler structures and um, emergent properties, all inexplicable really still to science. Uh, so that would probably be my answer to that. that um, these theories, these new theories return mystery to everything, really. Space, time and the void. Uh, vo atoms and the void. Is that, is that okay? Next yes, till next week. I'll try and go into more detail about it next week. Brian, I think I've got the concept. <laughs> Not the detail. Um, uh, and the concept's absolutely not just fascinating, but I think it's it's a it's a paradigm shift that you quite rightly says takes the miracles, uh, which are, uh, think effectively the ones you mentioned are some conquest of space and time. It actually takes them out of any mythology and all. In all, all Jesus is doing is accelerating to the speed of light, arguably. Which so light has become the new constant, rather than space and time that are now squashable. Uh, and that, that we had always thought space, and I got that concept. I suppose uh, as you then developed it into some of its modifications, I'd need to kind of think, I'd need to get another lesson in that. But 
what did fascinate me was this fulcrum point. I think you had an experiment that happened in the 1870s that you didn't talk about. Was it the Mitchell-Morley experiment or something oh, like that? Uh, which sort of seemed to me to suggest there was some experimental recognition of this that began, which I, and I think from memory, just historically, uh, Einstein built on that experiment. If that experiment didn't happen, he probably wouldn't quite as easily have developed his theory of relativity. I just wonder if you could just perhaps t explain that to us. Thank you, Tony. Yes, uh, you're quite right. I completely skipped over that. I don't know why. I must have been too excited about getting to the next slide. I'll just quickly, oops, go back to it. Um, yeah, so the Michelson-Morley experiment was a very crucial experiment. It was a pretty simple one, really. Um, it's on slide 29. And... Uh, Michelson and Morley came up with this ingenious idea. Basically, there was nothing that could travel anywhere near the spe speed of light, any significant proportion portion of the speed of light, to try and chase down a light beam. You know, you, you fire a light beam and you send a train after it, or even a plane, or even a rocket, <coughs> and the the scaling is just insignificant. So the one thing they did thought of was the way the Earth whizzes around the Sun. You know, that's got some speed to it, some significant proportion of the speed of light. And, of course, the Earth is travelling in one direction at one end of one side of the orbit, and it travels in the other direction at the other side of the orbit <coughs> around the Sun. So they, were, they created an experiment to see if the Earth could make any significant inroads into catching up to or travelling away from light coming from sources either in the same direction or opposite directions to the way they were the Earth is travelling and they came up with a null result. There, was no, there, there is no way to detect any change in the speed of light. And that's how, that's, that, that was very crucial in Einstein's big thought experiment and the way he came up to, to so, relativity. Because the Earth is travelling so fast um, and if, if a light, light beam is coming from the same direction uh, toward the Earth, on one point of its axis it's travelling with the light beam, on another as it comes around it's travelling against the light beam very much more significantly than anything we could do and if uh, Newtonian physics was correct the speed of the earth both with the light beam should have added to the light beam and coming around the other side should have distracted from the light beam so they could measure that and if Newtonian physics was true there would have been some quantifiable difference between the point when it's the earth's going with the light beam and the point it's going against the light beam exactly as you about on your thing here, but there was none, and there should have been some. Right. If, if, if we were living in a Newtonian universe. I mean, that's not exactly how it happened. The details, they created their own light beam and they used interferon, you know, all sorts of clever devices, but the, the result was effectively that. That's, that's what first clued them into the fact that light was different. I, have you given any thought to the intermediate state or the phenomena of death? And um, physics? That's a scary question. 
Um, the short answer is, well, I, well, I, I, we all have, I'm sure. It's a pretty, while we all put on a brave face, I think it's a pretty scary transition, even as a believer, heading off into the unknown. Um, I think it, there is uh, there is some relation to that and possibly my previous talk in that um, I think that what we are as a human being is not contained purely in our physical structure because clearly our physical structure decomposes and is gone once we're dead but yet the scriptural promise is that we are going to persist through somehow as the individuals that we are um, you know I know that physicists actually have speculated space-time is almost like a giant hard drive uh, that has recorded somehow God's hard drive if you like that records everything and then will um, stores it and recreates it in the new creation quantum theory you know you can have others there's a guy called he's a physicist called Tipler he wrote a book called The Physics of Immortality where he, sp he speculates on these sort of things purely using quantum theory uh, my answer though for my own personal speculation is I probably don't have I think it's it's impossible it's an impossible subject but it's a, it's a very interesting question I agree um, I think uh, um, um, around all of this there is a sort of a question of epistemology uh, you know, we and, and your question we're looking at stuff trying to draw trying to intimate from that or infer from what we observe uh, rules and we hope those rules will eventually become um, we'll get the theory of everything um, in fact uh, both scripture um, and I think uh, some people call critical realism said well actually that will always be a fruitless quest uh, the, the most famous, I think, the on this took place um, in the in the Enlightenment between uh, Descartes and Vico. And um, Descartes is well known, Vico less well known, but Vico is he'd be the hero of this kind of talk. Um, roughly a generation after Descartes, Italian Descartes, of course, French, much more structured. Um, and Descartes was in a sense providing some kind of philosophical uh, baptism around Newtonian physics I think you know it was really a, a mechanical world that that one could derive via pure reason um, uh, it's 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 uh, ultimate truth with some precision Vico began uh, as Cartesian but began to doubt it the older he got and famously revolted against it and is widely celebrated if you want to read about Vico have you, have you read much Vico? Um, well Vico is a real hero uh, a great sort of essayist philosopher called uh, 
I think it's Isaac Berlin, Berlin wrote a famous book, uh, some essays on Vico. It's really worth reading. Uh, also, Vico himself. Um, uh, uh, Vico is now known as the father of social anthropology, the father of the social scientists. But what Vico said was a masterstroke against Descartes. And it's quite simple. He said, the only person who can understand a system is the person who made it. In other words, the fish can never understand the fishbowl. You know, I could interview the brake pad of a BMW all I like, and I'm not going to get a BMW out of it, right? It just knows about brake pads. Um, but if I made the BMW, if I was the designer, I pretty well can tell you all about it. So he said, um, God is the architect of nature. We, we have intimations, <laughs> um, but we didn't make nature, so we'll never understand it. He didn't therefore say don't study it. He didn't therefore say it wasn't useful because he was also a Christian, as was Descartes. So he thought within a providence, we've got good enough knowledge to be intrigued, um, understand a lot, make a lot happen, point us toward truth, but we'll never contain it. Um, and I think you could wrap that around the death resurrection question where gloriously the entrance of God into our experience has just declared to us this state which we could never grasp, you know, fingernail our way up to. Thank you. I will just... I'll talk to you in a second, Mark. Uh, I'd just like to add to that. I think this is a nice little hint in First Corinthians fifteen thirty-seven. Uh, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So the the nature of the next age is somehow contained within this age but it's only in seed form obviously and what it will be well that's what 1 John said 1 John 3 says 2 it does not yet appear what will be so uh, how we cope with how the death process happens I think is all part, obviously part in part of that mystery and ask some harder questions because you haven't defined what light is and secondly I think you might have oversold the speed of light because it's not constant because it changes our glasses are a classic case of speed of light can be controlled and reduced thank you for those hard questions Mark um, I'll answer the second one first uh, the speed of light, yes, it does change in different mediums. Uh, speed of light in a vacuum is what is constant. Um, it still doesn't change the physics of space and time, though. Uh, and as far as defining what light is, um, that is a very mysterious thing, which physics really doesn't have any inkling of. Um, the equations seem to indicate that uh, space, time, light, matter and energy are all interlinked and part of the same substance. What light is though, I'm not aware of any successful speculation on that subject. Do you know of any? Mark? <laughs> no. And that's, I think, the good thing. I think it's nice that 
again, Einstein has brought a lot of mystery back into the universe. He's made matter mysterious, he's made space and time mysterious, he's made light mysterious, and he's bundled them all together and said they're all part of the same mystery. Because ultimately, you could ask, what is time? Or what is space? They're, they're all just as mysterious as light is, really, in the Einsteinian universe. They're no longer just infinite duration or infinite extension, which is what the Greeks would have said it was, or Newton would have said it was. They're actually this created substance that is all part of the mysterious uh, fabric of reality, really. Is that... Am I passing the buck there, or is that... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I was just interested whether all this talk in cosmology about dark matter uh, has anything to suggest to what we've been talking about. Well, dark matter and dark energy... Dark matter is old news. We're now into dark energy, and it, that all comes from um, these cosmological speculations that the universe is... It comes from the cosmological speculations about the expansion of the universe and the rate at which it's expanding and whether it will continue to expand forever or is it slowing down in its expansion and you know cosmologists basically have nothing else to do but think about these silly sort of questions so they they then try and measure all the matter that they can see in the universe and they they kind of postulate well there's not enough mass just in normal matter to explain the type of expansion that's going on so we better create this new stuff called dark matter which they don't have any idea what it is and then when they think there's not enough dark matter they come up with dark energy which <coughs> adjusts their speculations about dark matter and it becomes like a repulsive it's actually going back to Einstein actually postulated the um, universal gravitational constant which he felt was what was expanding the universe there's some Un unknown constant which governs the expansion rate of the universe built into his equations well dark energy sort of takes that uh, position in the modern speculation but it is all speculation it's almost in the nature of dark energy that it's undetectable a bit like string theory uh, more mystery, more mystery. <laughs>